Hey everybody, go ahead and pull out your Bible. If you don't have one, there's one in the pew right in front of you there. And um, Libby's going to get ready to read. And as she reads this passage, which is a couple different episodes, I want you to look for um, the answer to that question. What is the unifying dilemma in these stories? All these stories have one major unifying dilemma, whether to have blank or to give in to blank. That's, I know that's kind of easy, just two blanks, but see if you can sort it out. Good morning. Uh, Our reading today is Luke chapter 8, verses 16 through 56, and that is found on page 1575. No one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even when they think they have, will be taken from them. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith? he asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They sailed to a region of the Gerasenes, which is across a lake from the Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. 
But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, Don't be afraid, just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. Thanks, Libby. Sometimes people get a little bit annoyed that I try to preach on passages this long, and they think, Nick, why can't we take our time? Why can't we just go through Luke and preach just one passage at a time rather than six? And um, there's essentially four reasons for that, okay? And I want to tell you because they're actually important for the life of our church. The first is because for the last year, there has been a Sunday class literally going through every phrase and word of the entire Gospel of Luke. And one of the things that actually— I wish was different at High Point was we have, we actually have really good teachers in our Sunday classes and not that many people go to them. And I'd love to see more people go to them. And if you want to like fine-tooth comb through the Bible, which is really worthwhile, go to a Sunday class. Secondly, um, sorry, my, I can't remember some things. Um, Secondly, one of the reasons is I want to encourage people to have personal devotions, a time during each day where they read the Bible for themselves for the purpose of increasing their devotion to Jesus. So in this passage in um, Luke chapter 8, there's about six or seven different passages. So you could—I'll lay out the theme, and then over the course of the week, you could just read one at a time each day on your way through and, like, just ask God what he wants to teach you and, and like, understand something about it in that passage that would increase your devotion for Jesus that day, Okay. The third is that if I preached through each episode, we would be in the Gospel of Luke for between two and four years. Okay, that's what it breaks down to. And about every year, somewhere between 13 and 18 percent of High Point Church leaves. Now, I always assumed that was just because of my winner personality. Um, I just expect people to have enough of me after a while and do something else. And, but Erin and a team of hers actually called a ton of people who had been at High Point Church for more than four months and then weren't. And the vast majority of them actually said, we moved. High Point's just—or Madison's just kind of like that. People come to school, and they leave. They get graduate degrees. They come for postdocs. They come midway through their career, like they're on their way up. And so they go from somewhere to Madison, then on to Minneapolis. We've had a number of families do that. And so just 12 to 18 percent of our church—and I don't want somebody who's here for two years to only hear me preach Luke. Partly because I want everybody who comes to High Point Church for a couple of years to hear Bible-focused— Christ-centered, Christ-exalting, sin-talking-about, repentance-encouraging, obedience-encouraging preaching so that they have a taste for it through multiple books of the Bible so that when they go somewhere else, they look for a church like that. Okay? And then last, whether you're new to the Bible and haven't really read it very much, or whether you've read the Bible for 25 years, what often happens is people who read the Bible read it in individual episodes. And so you can read through Luke 8, and not really get the theme. Luke is really great at laying out themes in sections, and sometimes you have to like preach a section to really get that. Does that make sense? So the question is, what's the theme of this section, right? That the unifying dilemma of these stories is whether to have faith or to give in to fear, right? It's like, once you are thinking about this through all the episodes, it's really obvious, right? Um, so I think if, we sum, if you summed up this whole section of Luke's gospel, which is just Luke chapter 8, it would be something like this. Christ's, fruitful, Christ, Christ's fruitfulness requires the obedience of faith over the reactions of fear. Okay, or to have, to have a fruitful life in Christ requires something like having— 
obedient faith rather than reacting on the basis of fear. Now, um, one of the things that happens with, with people who read the Bible a good bit is they assume that because a story meant one thing in one place, it means the same thing in another place. And that's not true. I mean, just think about stories you like to tell. Do you have any stories that you've told multiple times and the moral of the story was different? Different times you told the story? I mean, if you've been going to this church for long enough, you've probably heard me tell the same story of my life to illustrate different points. And Jesus did the same thing. He had lots of stories and illustrations that he would use over and over again, and they would mean different things in different places. So for example, in Mark chapter 4 was the parable of the sower. So that's the first part of chapter 8 that Mike preached on two weeks ago, I think, about this guy who, you know, he's throwing seeds in a field, and some get eaten by birds, and some grow up and wither really fast, and some grow up with like thorns and thistles choke them out, and they don't produce anything. And then the fourth group produces like a lot of fruit, right? And in Mark's gospel, Mark is still introducing us to Jesus and what Jesus is doing. And so for Mark, what we're supposed to get from the parable of the sower is Jesus is, is giving the word, and the word has to go out. And we as believers, in, in becoming his disciples, have to be people who throw the word out there. And like, you don't really know what's going to happen, but God will give some people ears to hear it. And if you give the word of God to folks, some will believe it, and some will be fruitful, and some won't for lots of different reasons. Now, in Luke's gospel, it's a little bit different. He concludes the parable in Luke's gospel in with a, a sentence that isn't in Mark's version, right? And when there's a difference, you pay attention to that difference because that is how that gospel writer is trying to help you understand Christ. He says this in verse 15. But the seed on good soil stands for— so he's literally going to tell you the interpretation of the whole parable. Stands for those who with a noble and good heart hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. So the whole point of the first 15 verses of this chapter are that, the, that what matters in relationship to God's word is what happens when it hits you. What sort of here is happening? And so in the story, there's four different kinds, right? One is like it hits you and it just kind of bounces off, right? That's the that's the seed that just hits the ground and the birds just come and pick it up. Like, it, it doesn't penetrate at all. You, like, you hear it and it just, you just blow it off. It doesn't matter. You don't believe it. That's all there is to it. The second, it says, the people receive it with joy, but because there's no root, it withers. And you've seen that, like, in people before, where they're like, oh, like, I love Jesus. And then, like, two weeks later, they're like, don't tell me to go to church. I don't want to go to church. Don't judge me. You know, it's like, and, and you've seen it in your own life because it can be in particular situations. So you can say, no, I love Jesus, but there's like a thing that you don't want to face, right? And that you hear the Word of God speak to that thing, and you feel like convicted, and you're like, oh, that hurts. And so for a little while, you're like, oh, I'm really going to face that thing. I'm really going to learn to believe Jesus in that thing. I'm really going to write. And then you don't, and then it just kind of shrivels up, right? And then the third is the Word of God comes, and it actually grows, and you're actually doing something with it. But then, like, life kind of cuts in. You know, like there's, in, in um, Matthew, he says, like, it's the, the fears or cares of the world, the love of wealth, or the desire for other things. So fear, wealth, distraction, right? They grow up kind of like weeds, and they, ch they choke the thing. And so it doesn't produce any fruit, right? So it's, it's hearing, but it's not hearing the Word of God as the supreme truth that places everything else. And that weeds everything else in your life around it. It's the kind of hearing that like, yeah, I believe this, but I believe these other things too. They're, everything's important, you know? It's like the sort of man who goes—usually these men I hear this from. You know, I'm—I believe in God, but I, I don't want to be too religious. I don't want to be one of those fanatics, right? There's a huge difference between somebody who deeply is a deep disciple of Jesus and somebody who's literally a fanatic. People who are fanatics— don't really understand things deeply, and they don't become more loving, right? They become shallower while they become more committed. Disciples become deeper as they become more committed. They're extremely different kinds of creatures, and it's a cop-out, right? But it comes from that attitude of like, well, I got to keep everything balanced. No, you don't. Jesus has to be supreme, and Jesus will place everything else so you'll know exactly where it goes, and it will be in harmony with, each other, with itself. And then the last group, 
who believes it. And then he says this, here's the difference for how they hear it. They hear it, meaning they let it come in and they understand its message. They retain it. They don't let it get stolen off of their heart. They hold on to it with a certain kind of vigilance and they don't quit. They persevere in it. No, how, no matter how many stops and starts and ups and downs and backs and forwards and, you know, like childbirth, you know, two step forward, one step back. There's a lot of jitteriness to growth. But when, when you draw, when you look at all the wiggles and you draw the trend line through it, it goes towards Jesus. Even if it has a lot of detours. Does that make sense? And then as you move on, right, you begin to see that Jesus doesn't get off this point when he tells a new story. He starts with the idea that, listen, before we get on to fear, the first step is, in order to grow, you need to obey what you already know. Right? Then, the reason you can put your faith in him above all your fears, and you can obey what you already know, is because everything obeys Jesus. That'll be a short point, because it's really obvious. And the third is, in order to have faith, you have to not give in to fear. That could, be, that could be one of the definitions of faith, not giving in to fear. We'll talk about that at the end. So first, to grow, you need to obey what you know. Okay, there are a lot of people who believe that in order to grow, you really need to take in more information. Okay? That is not true. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't read things and you shouldn't learn. What I'm saying is, is that that is not what holds the vast majority of human beings from becoming all they can be. What is normal of human beings is for us to play around with learning things and not actually do them. And so if you know much less, but you actually do it, you will grow enormously more than if you know a lot, but you put very little of it into practice. Okay? So I, I could tell you like six sentences— and that would be all you would need to know to run your life for the rest of your life. If you did those six things, every parent believes that. Be like, sweetie, man, I could write you three index cards, maybe just one index card. And if you did it, you would live a happy, healthy, meaningful, and good life that you would be proud of and I would be proud, right? Because we know that like, that the problem is not Lack of knowledge. Now, you got to be careful because there's— lack of knowledge is a problem, right? And it's a lack of—it's a, it's a problem because most people want to know all the reasons why they're supposed to do the right thing. And nobody—and and it's very difficult to know all of those reasons. Wisdom is a very difficult thing, right? So you could read through the Proverbs in the Bible, and you could, you could, you could come up with 35 things that you know wisdom says you should do. And a, a, you don't have to be intelligent. You don't need an IQ above about 75 to like memorize those 30 things and live by them, right? But if you want to know every single philosophical justification for those 30 things, you'll be at it your whole life. Because for every reason there is to do that thing, there's a counter reason, but then there's a counter reason for that, and it goes on in logic streams forever. But if Jesus will say something and you will trust him and you will do it, you will grow. And you will gain a knowledge that comes from experience. There's a place in John 7 where Jesus says, if you want to know if what I'm saying is from God, do it. And then you will know if what I say is from God. Because experience is its own education, and it's a very revelatory education. It is a practical education, and it's a helpful education. Right? So what Jesus says is, he says, look, what's important is how you hear. You have to hear it, you have to retain it, you have to persevere in it. And then in the next passage, he talks about a lamp on a stand, which is where a lot of Christians get back into the whole like, oh, I know the lamp on the stand thing. Yeah, like a city on a hill can't be hidden, a lamp you're supposed to put on a stand. We're supposed to let our light shine before men. We're supposed to be real Christians. Yes, if we were reading Matthew 5, you would be right. That's not what it means here, okay? What it, listen to what Jesus says, right? He says, no one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar, so no light gets out, right? Or puts it under a bed, which is a little awkward because these lamps were like lit with fire. So if you put that under a bed, you got real problems, right? Puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come can see the light. 
All right, so so far it's exactly like Matthew in a way. And then he says this, for, so now he's telling us why he's saying this, for there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. It's a little terrifying. Verse 18, therefore, so what's the significance of that for your life? Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. And then he says one of the most terrifying things in the whole Bible that doesn't terrify people because they don't know what it means. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have, will be taken from them. Now that's interesting because most people assume that refers to like goods and wealth. Which is strangely ironic to have that in Luke's gospel if that were the case. Because Luke's gospel is the one that focuses the most on the poor and giving to the poor. And like it sounds, Luke's gospel sounds the most unreasonable about that. About giving every, sell all you, give everything you have to the poor. When you have a party, invite all the poor and crazy people. Then, those people can't repay you, then you'll have treasure in heaven, right? That's Luke. So what does he mean? What does he mean like the people who have will get more, and the people who don't have, even what they have will be taken from them? Right? Well, it, it probably relates to being very careful about how you listen, Right? And it also has to do with something about a light exposing everything. There's nothing hidden that won't be made known, right? So you can think about it this way. Oh, that's, that's a terrifying statement. You can think about it this way. If the Word of God is getting sown like seeds, right, and it hits you, you're the soil, right? So the Word of God hits you. So this could be the word about Jesus, death and resurrection, that you have to believe. Or it could just be something about something about you coming from Jesus, right? And it, the seed hits you, right? What happens? Now you've got, you got two choices, right? One choice is to like open up the soil and let it come in, right? And to like take over. Like the, this thing is going to like stick roots everywhere and grow up and like take the water. And it's going to be a problem. Okay, but it's going to do something. And so you can say, no, no, I am not. What you're saying to me isn't true, right? Because that's what it means to not receive the seed if the seed is a word. Because the only thing you do with a word is believe it or not believe it, receive it or reject it, right? So you can reject it. You can say no, right? Now, the problem is, is that what the word is saying is it's saying something about us, right? So the word of Jesus is, a, is saying that I'm valuable and wicked at the same time, right? It's saying that I have this enormous God-given potential, that God cares about me, that God has given himself for me in Christ, but that I am selfish, wicked, ambitious in all the wrong ways rather than all the good ways. Like there's all kinds of things horrifically wrong with me, and it's terrifying. And that word, if I accept it as true, if I say, yes, that word is right, that is going to humiliate me and it's going to expose me. It's terrifying. It's terrifying to different genders for slightly different reasons with overlap, but it's terrifying for everyone. And so what you want to do is you want to say no. And what you do when you say no is you, you hold the concealing dome over what's really inside of you. Because if you can hold that concealing dome, then you can, you can prosecute your life the way you want to. You can like do your stuff and try to get ahead and try to be seen the way you want people to see you, and you can do your stuff. And so then you can maybe get ahead. And so like you conceal and you protect what you have and you don't want that word to get in and expose you and humiliate you. And then you can do the sorts of things that are going to draw you up, right? And what Jesus says is that'll never work. It'll never work. Because the, the day is going to come when whether you want my word to penetrate the dome of your protection of your life at all, I'm going to shatter that thing. The day is going to come where I'm going to light the lamp of judgment and I'm going to raise it up so high that nothing will be hidden. Nothing. And in that day, the thing you thought you could protect will be exposed to everyone. But under that dome of your protection, everything that you could have been will have withered rather than grown. So you will have never become anything and you will lose the thing you protected in which you wasted all that potential. Even what you have, you won't get anything more, and even what you have will be taken from you. You'll lose everything, right? He said, but to the person who 
is, receives that word, the word that humiliates and exposes, the word that's hard, the word that all fear says no, right? It comes in and it tears you open. But it tears you open, but it, it shatters the sort of like the black dome over the plant that you're supposed to be. And the sunlight comes in, and all of a sudden something that's there can grow. Like, because here's the thing, why don't people grow? It's because they won't hear the truth. They can't listen to it. They won't listen to it. They won't be critiqued. They don't want your advice. I'm fine. The way they deal with the fear of life is to say, I'm fine. I'm good enough. I'm fine. Don't attack me. Right? But when you, you really open yourself up, it's terrifying. Right? That's why so many people never have good romantic relationships. Because they've been so traumatized, they're so terrified of really being themselves all the time with the other person. And realizing that, like, they're not a good person, and if they're really themselves, the other person's going to know it. And they have to believe that that other person believes in the person they can become and will love the person that they are. And who would do that? Who would do that? And so they dome off their heart from the person they're supposed to love. And the other person does it too, and they wonder why they drift apart after the animalistic passions of their infatuation die down, and there's no deep root that's drawing them together, drinking out of the same goblet of eternal love. But you see, if the word of Jesus humiliates and exposes you now, it allows the Son of the truth of God to come in, and you grow. You become what you were meant to be. You live up into the image of God. You grow in what the Bible calls godliness or holiness. You're, you're rooted in the truth, and you're unsquished by those weeds. And so in the end, you have both. You have your dignity, you have your personhood, and you have become all that you were created to be in God. And you not only have, but you are given more. That is way more terrifying than understanding that verse economically. That means everything is at stake in what happens when the Word of God hits you. Everything. I mean, think about this. God didn't have to tell us about hell. I mean, have you, I don't know if your, your parents, have you ever punished your kids where like you did not tell them the consequence beforehand? You just hit them with it. No more warnings. Warnings is like the worst way to parent, right? Because like, they're like, I think I can pull this, I can string this off a little bit longer. They're like, they're like playing the borders. You know what I mean? It's like creating a nuclear deal with Iran. You just can't parent that. Sometimes you just got to hit them with the thing. Like, you're grounded. It's over. I'm flipping your canoe. Like, that's it, right? And, it's, and it works in parenting because, it works in parenting because they're going to live on, right? You're teaching them a lesson. But like God could just make damnation, damnation, and not speak a word of it, a whisper of it, until we're in it. I mean, you ever think about that? Why did Jesus be like, man, you got it coming, man? Like, why did he even do that? I mean, think about this. You'd be like, well, it's probably not that bad. Okay, it's probably not that bad. A legion of demons begs Jesus not to send them there. Okay, like, who is more like B.A. Baracus than a bunch of demons? Like, if you think somebody would be like, hey, hell's gonna be fun. Yeah, I would think it'd be like a whole bunch of demons, right? They'd be like, hey, send us to the abyss. Like, don't throw us in the briar patch, Jesus. You know, like, like let's, you know, we'll have a party in hell. No! Demons are terrified to go there. They will do anything. They will go anywhere. They will accept any alternative than to be sent there by the word of Jesus. Okay? And we're told about it. We know. He, he says it. Now, why is that true? Well, here's why, I think. I think it's because the fear of God and the truth, our fear of God and the truth, is actually our greatest weapon against our fear of God and the truth. Okay, here's, here's what I mean by that. Our sinful flesh is terrified of the truth. And so we'll do anything to protect ourselves from it. Anything, 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 anything. Fear will do anything to protect ourselves. The only thing stronger than that is to have the fear that that might not work. Or the knowledge that it won't work. 
You see, there are things, there are ways that we will hide, there are ways that we'll be selfish, there are ways that we'll sin, where the only thing that will persuade us not to do it is to know that after all of that that we give up to do the thing, it won't work in the end. We'll lose everything. Um, people have been studying brains now for a while with the imaging stuff, whatever. One of the things that they've realized is that in the human brain, the positive feeling center and the negative feeling center are actually entirely different parts of the brain. Just different parts of the brain. They're not even hardly related. I mean, they're related, but they're hardly related, right? And negative emotion is about 10 times more powerful, I know, right, than positive emotion. I don't know if you realize this. That's why they say, you know, always make sure that you say 10 nice things to your coworker or child before you say one negative thing, right? Well, they, your coworker and child should grow up. But you do need to say more nice things than negative things. But what, what it also means is this. The most effective thing actually to combat negative emotion is alternative negative emotion. People don't want to believe that because they want to be positive. Can't we just be positive? Why? Because we don't want to be told the truth. It goes all, it sw- swirls back. We don't want to be told the truth, so can't we just be all about positive emotion? Positive emotion will not help you conquer your negative emotion. It will not do it. It cannot do it. You actually need a—if you have this negative thing, this fear, this negative emotion, you need something that's even more negative to help you and something positive to aim for. You need both. That's why children are supposed to be born with both mothers and fathers, right? Because dads are like, it's not good enough. You're going to have to step it up, man. I'm not going to take this for right? And moms are like, you're still fantastic. It's going to be fine. I love you. You're okay just the way you are. Because, because are you okay just the way you are? In a way, yes, you are. In a way, you are okay just the way you are. And do you need to improve? Yes, you do. You need to improve. And you need, you need both of those voices in your life. And it shouldn't be all one and the other. There should be overlap. But generally speaking, right? And so Jesus, Jesus, the Bible is full of therapeutic, loving, careful, negative statements that are true, that are designed to give us the negative emotion we need to overcome our fears. You need to be more terrified of something than your selfish fears, like that you could lose It's the only way. It's the only way. And it is so—listen, I want you to hear this, okay? It is so loving for God to speak negatively to us. It is so loving. It is so compassionate. It is so empathetic. It is so sympathetic. It is so necessary. You think God likes to be negative? He exists in perfect happiness, in triune being from eternity past. With nothing, nothing to complain about, okay? When he's with himself in the triune personhood of the Godhead, there's nothing to complain about. There's nothing to be negative about. There is constant interrelating perfection and beauty. And then he decides to create us, knowing what would happen in the course of redemption. Like, it's like, it's like when your dad yells at you. Like, you really think he wants to yell at you? Like, it's possible he's still mad at his own dad, okay? That's possible, all right? But it's more likely he cares about you. It's more likely he cares about you. Even your, if you had a terrible dad who was like yelling at his own dad and beating the crap out of you, there was still a sliver of that that really did want to make you better. At least remember that about him. And so, we've got to start with realizing that we have to hear in a certain way. We've got to hear, retain, and persevere. We've got to hear in the way, Jesus says, who are my, who are my, who's my mother and my brother and my sister? Who, who really is part of my family? It's the person who hears my word and what? And puts it into practice. Second thing is that we can obey Jesus because everything obeys Jesus. Do you, do you realize that, like, you are the only kind of creature other than angelic demons? There's, like, only certain kinds of conscious creatures, and there's only one that has a bo- kind that has a bodies that doesn't obey Jesus. Right? Like, 
everything obeys Jesus. So like, you need a certain amount of negative emotion to deal with your fear. You also need a lot of positive emotion to deal with your fear, right? You need somebody to say to you, hey, man, it's going to be okay. Like, there is a word, there is a person who will bring things right. You don't have to be afraid. In the positive sense, there's an eternity. There's a heaven. There's a warrior that fights on your behalf. There's an unstoppable king that you belong to. There's a city that will exist forever that you are a citizen of. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for you. There's a you that you are meant to become through whatever path it takes. No matter how much winding, if you stay on the trajectory line of Jesus, if you trust him, you will make it. Everything obeys Jesus when it comes down to it. And so, like, think about the episodes, right? A, a small sea, like ocean, obeys Jesus. A legion of demonic beings obey Jesus. Like, okay, I liked the Thanos movie. Like, I'm, I'm a sucker for Empire Strikes Back kind of endings, you know? And so— I did like the movie. And you kind of like, you sort of expect that. Like when Jesus shows up on the beach and there's a guy whose name is Legion because apparently there's thousands of demons under this one who's doing the speaking. And, you know, here's, here's Rabbi Jesus. You know, it, like that doesn't sound like the beginning of a joke. That sounds like a cosmic superhero collision, right? And there's no fight. All that happens is begging. I mean, think about that for a second. There's a legion of demons and all they do is beg. Because Je Luke just says, in passing, Jesus is like, hey, you need to come out of him. The entire spiritual realm obeys Jesus, right? And then incurable disease obeys Jesus with the touch of the bottom of his clothes. And Jesus, and Luke emphasizes twice that the healing was immediate. It doesn't do that in every place in the gospel when Jesus heals people. But it says twice that the healing was immediate. She waited 12 years. She got healed in one second. And then, what's the fourth one, of course? Death. So, the physical world and all of its elements, the entire metaphysical and demonic and spiritual realm, all incurable disease and death itself obeys Jesus. So, I don't know what all your fears are, okay? If you're a normal human being and you're not in horrific denial, you're afraid of pretty much everything, okay? And if you're in denial and you're like, I'm not afraid of stuff, that's why you're taking your anxiety medicine because you can't admit to yourself that you're afraid of basically everything, okay? Like, it's, it's hilarious. Like, people are like, I'm not afraid of stuff, right? And like, the, our whole society is awash in anxiety and depression, which comes from fear that we won't even admit to. And that's been going on for years, especially in the West, especially among educated people. Carl Jung used to make people write down their dreams, and he'd be like, oh, he's like all Freudian and stuff. No, he was like, most people can't emotionally admit to themselves what they actually feel. And so I make them write down their dreams, because it's like the one time in their life where they remember something they actually felt. And I can get at what the real problems are. That's true. It's very helpful. I've used it in pastoral counseling. It can be very helpful. Right? We're terrified of like basically everything, okay? Because listen, we're incredibly frail creatures that can't control other people. We live among an incredibly brutal race of beings that aside from these enormously complex sociological rules that we've created that people are always trying to destroy. We like basically wipe each other out in the millions. There's a thousand things that can go wrong with your health. Everything can go wrong with your romantic relationships. Your friends can like meet somebody better. Like there's literally everything in your life can blow up at any moment, okay? And so if you're looking at the world the way it really is, you'd be terrified about everything, right? Now this doesn't mean you can't have courage about everything. But you'd be afraid of a lot more than you know you're afraid of, right? And Jesus is showing us. He didn't even say it. He just showed us. He's like, everything in the end will submit to me. And so they're like, literally these, these, these are fishermen, okay, guys? Like, these are people who know when you're in trouble at sea, okay? These aren't like pleasure cruises. It's like, oh, let's go for a little chicken cruise and look at some KFC and like go for a little cruise. That's not who these people are. These are people who like fish in bad seas, okay? And they're out, and the, the boat is filling with water, and they're like, we're gonna die, okay? The literal Greek is, Lord, we perish. We die, right? 
And Jesus calms the sea, and he turns these guys. You guys, I don't know when the last time you thought you were about to die was, okay? Hopefully for many of you, you've never felt that. But these were people who literally one minute previous to this thought they were just about to die. Literally die, okay? Like, get some emotion in you here. Like, this is a horrific moment. Like, somebody's got a gun in their mouth, right? Something happens to you emotionally. They're terrified, right? And then Jesus goes, be still, and it just stops. It's like— And he turns to them, right? And they, like, haven't even used toilet paper yet. And Jesus says, (laughs) right? He's like, where's your faith? Like, it's obvious. Like, it was obvious. He was asleep. They were about to die. The boat's half full of water. Like, they have friends who have died at sea, right? In this lake that gets very terrible squalls that come kind of out of nowhere over the Golan Heights, right? And he's like, where's your faith? And they're like, I don't know, Jesus. You know, and, and they turn to each other, and it says they were what? They were afraid and amazed. Okay, those are the two emotions you need about Jesus, guys. Those two. You get those two emotions, you're going to sail through life. I don't care what happens to you. You can be in a Russian gulag. You got the fear of God and an amazement of Christ, and you're going to make it. You're going to make it. And you're going to have meaning, and you're going to be unhappy in very unlikely moments. You know what I'm saying? And that's what they felt. At that moment, they felt terrified. Because who can make a sea Shut up. And yet, it's amazing. And that's how God should make you feel. If, and, and I'm not saying you're a bad person if that's not true. You are a bad person, not for that reason. The, what I'm saying is, is, is saying, if you were able to see the God who was there, like he really is, the emotion you would spontaneously have is you would be terrified— you would have a beautifully appropriate negative emotion that would be enormously motivating, and you would be amazed. You would have a beautiful goal and desire and focus on something worth living for and toward. And it would ground you, and it would fill you, and it would change you. Right? And Jesus is just like, hey, where's your faith? Believe, right? Which leads to point number three, which is, To have faith, you can't give in to fear. You could argue that that would be one definition of faith, that faith is not giving in to fear. Now, it's important to recognize that whenever you need to have faith is going to be one of those moments when you're normally going to have fear. That's when you need faith, right? Because you believe something, you believe a certain truth, and you're kind of sailing along believing in that truth, and then something happens that makes pursuing that truth like you normally would seem like it's not going to work. You understand? It's not going to work. And all of a sudden, your flesh and your instincts and your whatever start going, oh, we can't do this, right? Now, listen, I I cannot tell you how many sort of like village atheist types have said to me, you know, I believe in reason. Reason is like what we really should live by, and people who have faith are really just afraid, okay? They're they like, they can't deal with a fear of death, and so they believe in God so that they can like not have to worry about that, right? Now, there's a little bit of truth to that, okay? You are going to die. That is terrifying. Believing that you're going to go to heaven is helpful, right? Here's how you know the difference between people who, for whom that's just a way to deal with a fear of death and not. That when things in their normal living life is terrifying— People who believe in a faith as a kind of fire insurance don't make the gut check in real life. They do whatever is expedient, whatever seems like it's going to get them what they want, and then they hope that they're going to go to heaven. That's what they do. People who actually believe in Jesus—here's what I know from being a pastor now for like 20 years in one kind of ministry or another. Uh, Here's what I really struggle with. People who claim to be Christians, who when their life is blowing up, 
they just do whatever's closest. They just do something. They just like live with the guy, or they do the thing, or they like tear into the person that's annoying them, or they isolate themselves from people who care about them because the relationship to sort out is really difficult, or they tell lies, or they capitulate, or they do whatever seems like it's going to work. They don't fight through something with their spouse and find help if they can't sort it out. So they just let the thing fester for 10 more years until their wife leaves them one day. You know, it's that. They do, that's what they do. They do something quick, down and dirty, expedient, pragmatic, fleshly, fear-driven is what they do. Everybody does that. Unless they have faith. Unless they face the fear with a certain kind of faith. And see, and see, when you see it that way, the fear-faith dichotomy, you could believe that if you're an atheist, right? Like, atheists believe, like, you shouldn't kick puppies. Like, we have shared beliefs with atheists. Like, you don't kick puppies. Being kind is good. You know, like, torturing babies is wrong. There's a certain body of beliefs that, like, most people share, right? And so if you're an atheist, you don't even believe in God at all, right? You still believe in untouchable, immaterial, non-empirical, metaphysical beliefs that you think are real, Right? Like, somebody shouldn't just come and shoot you. That's bad. And some, right? And so you're cruising along, and you, look, you can't, like, hold, make love to, eat, buy, sell any of that stuff. It's this immaterial thing you believe in, right? No matter what you believe about God, right? And you're sailing towards that thing. You think that thing. And then something happens that makes you afraid, or that you, like, and it makes you want to do something else. And the question is, What are you going to do when that fear hits you? And if you say, I'm not going to drive off the cliff to do whatever is expedient, I'm going to stay true to that truth. That's called faith. You understand? That's faith. I'm not going to let the fear take me. I'm going to stay true to that truth. That's called faith. Now, the reason that's true for everybody is because God created everything He gave everybody a human conscience. We all have—like, there's all kinds of reasons why, if you're an atheist, you should become a Christian. Right now would be great, right? But Jesus stands as the way, the truth, and the life, okay? And what he—what Jesus basically argues, and the whole Bible argues this, is that there's nothing irrational about believing in Jesus. That the claim of the Bible is that if we could use our rationality fully, and if we could see all the relevant information— we would be drawn to believe in Christ absolutely with no reasonable alternatives. There would be no intellectually virtuous way to use our reason other than to throw ourselves on the truth of the reality of Christ. That's the argument the Bible makes, that Jesus is true. And when we put our faith in him, we put our faith in him not as some pragmatic thing that's going to help our life, but as the truth. Okay? And we aim at that truth, and then what happens is then life happens to us, and we get afraid. He's not going to heal my daughter. We're going to die in this storm. I'm going to be sick with this the rest of my life. Right? I'm never going to get out of this stupid job. I can't heal this relationship. My kids are always going to hate me. My parents are always going to be this way. I'm never going to make the cut for school. I'm never going to get free of this addiction. Whatever, right? And so— That fear creates a defeatist attitude. You're never going to be faithful to that. You're never going to make it. Or even if you try, you're going to lose everything. You have to choose between a good life and believing the truth. You can't have—you can't have a good life and the truth. It's going to be just one, and you're probably going to lose both. And so fear drives you down to that pragmatic choice. And the question is, does something interrupt it? Does the amazing presence of Christ— and the grounding greater fear of losing everything interrupt the mental takeover of fear and say, no, no! I will not lose faith. No! I will not retreat. I will not surrender. I will not give in to this thing. I will not do what people expect me to do again. I will not do it. This is what is true. This is what is good. This is what is beautiful. This is, and it is embodied in Christ himself, and I belong to him, and everything obeys him. And everything will be exposed, and I will proceed. I will not just hear, and I will not just retain. I will persevere. 
in believing what's true until I find myself with him. The dilemma that we all face in most of the days of our life is not faith versus reason. It's not. It has nothing to do with it. Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of all true reason. And that turning away from his is to be irrational and to create fake truths, which he calls idols. And then to follow those fake truths, he calls that sin. It is falsehood, Right? But he says, the real dichotomy that people face is, is that fear is constantly taking us. Every minute of every day, it is tempting us away from the truth. And every moment then, every time there is fear, there is the opportunity to have faith. To say, no, I will not let the fear take me, and I will proceed towards the truth as it is. Worship team, why don't you guys come up? And <clears throat> Jesus is saying that. He's saying, in, for us to be fruitful— for us to become the people we're meant to be, for us to become full in Christ, and for us to together become the kind of people we can be in Christ, we have to live obedient faith. There has to be obedience. We have to do the stuff. And even when you're like, Nick, sometimes there's nothing to do. There's there's always praying to do. Telling God that it's going to be up to him because you're going to stay the course. And that you're asking him or trusting him for something. But he, but he promises that if, if we will hear, retain and obey. If we will be careful how we listen. If we will realize that to believe and put it into practice, we are become his brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers. If we recognize that he, he, has, the, he has power over earth, spirits, sickness, and death. And if we realize that in the the moments of our fear, which is constantly, we have some fear, right fear and amazement of the one true and loving God. The destroyer of fear can be beaten. Courage can rise up in us strength that we never thought that we could possibly have will come forth in that amazement and fear, and we will find ourselves able to believe, to exercise faith, and to grow in strength of that faith. Let's pray. Father, as we turn ourselves to to sing a, a song of worship, we pray that you use it to apply these truths. We pray that as we sing these songs, we would recognize that whatever fear we brought in that we pledge to you that you're enough for us, that you are our great Savior, that you can carry us through, that we can live toward you, and that there is no defeat that must be final for us, and nothing that has us that must have us. Help us to declare our freedom in you, to believe in our freedom in you. We pray in Christ's name.